0: Okay, so we're on that step one, dealing with the relinquished property, or just diving in to talk about, you know, determining that this property is like kind property, that it can be used in the exchange, that it can uh, meet the IRS requirements to qualify as property that can be used for a 1031 exchange. And as hey, I... So, like-
1: sorry to so sorry to interrupt, Rachel, you have us on um, your presentation mode. Oh, shoot. Okay, let me switch that. But we had it all set up, right? And then it hadn't just, uh, Uh, everything good comes with some adversity, so (laughs) this is okay. Yeah, right. There we go.
0: Okay, we're switched.
1: Okay, perfect. Thank you.
0: All right. So In uh, with that like-kind property, I think it's easier to actually describe what doesn't qualify when we're talking about whether or not the property can be used in a 1031 exchange. And because we're keeping it, you know, simple today and boiling it down to these easy steps, I think the easiest way to describe it is that you can't do a 1031 exchange with primary residences. Um, You know, that always brings up a number of questions with what if it like was a primary residence, and then we've converted it to a rental or vice versa. Um, And you can, you know, dive in, there's some safe harbor and things for that. But if we're just keeping it simple today um, and going through these steps and looking at, hey, can I do a 1031? Is this property going to be a property I can sell for the 1031? Um, we're really going to think about it that we cannot do it with the primary residence. If you're living in the home and you're going to sell it, it's likely not going to meet the definition of like-kind property. The, uh, the second step in determining, you know, should I do a 1031 is really looking at your basis, right? Because the whole point of doing a 1031 is for tax deferral and knowing your basis in the property you're going to sell is going to be really you know helpful to know is are there capital gains when I if, that I could incur when I sell the property and if so would there be an advantage to do a 1031 and defer my um, my tax recognition on that and so knowing the basis again if we really boil it down basis we're really talking about you know what did you pay to purchase the property have you put any capital improvements in it? So basis is going to be what you purchase the property for, plus any capital improvements, less any depreciation. Um, You know, you can contact your CPA, talk through this, figure out what your basis is, and have that number in mind as you're getting set up and doing these steps and determining, you know, should I get set up to do a 1031? If, this, if you know, looking at that basis and the type of property you decide, hey, this makes sense, let's do it. The next step is very simple. You're going to contact a 1031 exchange accommodator, let them know, hey, I'd like you to act as my qualified intermediary. I want to get an exchange set up. And the good thing is they're going to say, okay, great, you know, do you have a contract yet? What's the property you're going to sell? And they're going to take a lot of it from there, right? They're going to do the paperwork for you. Um, They're going to communicate directly with the title companies you know oftentimes you know happy to communicate directly with with a tax advisor or CPA that you might be working with. And so that's going to be really the easiest steps of all um, is reaching out getting things set up with that accommodator. then once you've got step one done, right, we're ready to sell. We know the property. We know it's a, it meets the definition of like kind. We've figured out our basis and that there's a reason to do a 1031 and get the tax deferral. We've got the exchange set up. Then we're going to move on to step two. And as we mentioned, you know, step two is identify. That's the second step in the process. And this kind of gets broken down into three, you know, key features, First is the timing, you've got 45 days to identify, Um, you know, day zero is the day of recording on the sale of your property, day one's the next day, and you've got day 45 to identify the property. Now we're going to cover, surprisingly, three rules um, to discuss on, you know, what are those rules around the identification? Can I just identify anything? Can I identify, you know, 30 properties? What are those rules? We're going to discuss that. And then also we're going to break down a little bit of what what information do you need to identify? You've got to give a proper description of the property you're identifying and so we're going to break that down into some, you know, um, simple explanation of the information you need when you're identifying the property. So moving to these rules, okay. So really, the identification rules can get broken down into these three rules. They're generally known as the three property rule, the 95% rule, and the 200% rule. Now, one thing about the three property rule is it's really nice, simple, easy to understand, which is not very common for the IRS, right? Typically, the IRS doesn't like to put things in place that are easy for us to understand. But the good thing about the three property rule is you know, my, my two-year-old can currently count to 10. And so she could even follow this three property rule if needed, right? She can count to three. Um, So this is why not surprisingly, it's the most common rule used. Um, You can identify three properties uh, or up to three properties in that 45 day window. Um, It's without regard to fair market value. So, you know, the value of these properties can be, you know, anything combined. And then, you know, you've got to, when we when we get to the step of purchasing, you've got to close on any combination of one to three of the properties you identified, making sure that we meet the equal uh, value, equal or greater value in equity that we'll talk about. Um, so this can this is the most common because it's the easiest to follow. And I mean, if you're talking about breaking down exchanges into three easy steps, this is it, right? Three property rule, you're gonna name three properties. Um, you know, oftentimes people ask, like, what if I change my mind in the process? Um, you can kind of swap in and swap out those properties during the 45 day window. So come day 45, you need to have set what those three properties are. But up to that point, let's say day 20, you name three, you know, day 30, you're like, Oh, one of those is just a real long shot. It's not going to happen. I want to swap that out with this other property. No problem. Um, So as long as you, you know, stay within that up to three properties and you do any swapping out during the 45 days, good to go. Um, The second rule is called the 95% rule. And this one um, is probably the, the least commonly used. And, you know, I've got on my slide there that it's pretty impractical. And as I talk through it, we'll understand why. So this rule you can Nate, you can identify an unlimited number of properties and unlimited value right so 20 properties worth you know 20 times the value of what you sold whatever you want that's all unlimited okay sounds great sounds super flexible sounds like the easiest rule to follow but here's the catch you've got to close on 95 percent of the value of what you identified so you've got to feel so comfortable that what you're identifying you're going to be able to close on all of it basically right i mean 95% we might as well have just called it 100 i'm not even sure why the irs gave that little 5% like you know if you name something you're going to you're going to if you've named it you basically are going to have to close on it um, so it can be pretty impractical not as often used it's a little bit more complicated um, so let's move to the the third one the 200% rule So the 200% rule, while, you know, maybe not as simple and not as common as the three property rule, um, it does give some flexibility and it is, you know, quite a bit easier to to follow than the 95% rule. So the 200% rule, you know, unlimited number of properties. So you're not limited to to that three properties. You can name as many as you want, but where you are limited is that the fair market value of the properties you identify Uh, cannot exceed 200% of the value that you're going, of the property you're going to sell. So while this can add some flexibility, let's say that, you know, there's just, you don't want to stay in the confines of that three property rule. You've got four you want to identify, or you've got five you want to identify. So long as the combined fair market value of those four properties doesn't exceed 200%, then you could follow the 200% rule and identify all four. Again, all three of these rules are subject to the forty five days. So you can swap, change things out, do all of that during that forty five day period. But by day forty five, you've really got to have these set because by day, you know forty six, the morning you wake up on day forty six, you can't change these around. Um, so those are the three different rules for identification. Uh, as mentioned, you know, the two hundred percent rule can be used if you need more flexibility than the three properties three property rule is great because it's just super easy to follow 95% rule. It's out there, but it's pretty impractical. And it's probably, you know, very rare that it's ever used.
1: Hey Molly, Molly, can I ask a quick question here? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Rachel, can I ask a quick question here?
0: Yes, of course. Um,
1: So those people who are identifying with the three property rule, that's the most common. What, I don't know if you have data on this or if it's just a gut feel, how many of those exchangers sometime after they identify are not able to close on those properties?
0: Yeah, that's a really, that's a great question. I don't know that I have the data. Um, I feel like that it's it's pretty rare. I mean, most of the time with the flexibility of being able to name up to three properties, uh, you know, it's very often what we typically see is that the exchanger's not planning to close on all three, right? They're naming three. Yeah. Um, the three of them are gonna meet their, you know, if they close on one, they're gonna meet their equal or greater value. And so most of the time, because they've got three named that would qualify, most of the time they're able to get it closed on at least one of those. Yeah, Um, I'd say that in the scenarios where an exchanger is selling, you know, a single property or two properties, and they're really using all three to, to meet their value it can become a little more often that they might not make it right. So if they have to close on all three to hit their value, and that's where I think the 200% rule can be really handy because, you know, if you had to hit all three to eat your value, arguably depending on, you know, the value of the other properties, you might even be able to name up to six to just give you a lot more flexibility. Yeah. Um, because you know things can come up, contingencies can come up. And either they can't close, they can't get it closed, or maybe they just can't get it closed in 180 days.
1: Right. right. Okay. I, you know, someone asked me that question the other day and I'm like, well, you know, I know sometimes exchanges fail because, you know, especially in a really, really hot market, they identify the three and they can't quite get any of those three under contract. Hopefully Hopefully, they're under contract prior to that 45-day window, right?
0: Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, looking ahead of time be- before you even, you know, have your relinquished property listed, you're looking, you know, you can go under contract for that purchase prior to closing on your cell, prior to even getting listed on your cell, yeah. And yeah, that obviously really dramatically, I think, increases the likelihood that the exchange will will complete because you're under contract. It's more likely that you'll close. I will say that in the, in the hot markets, we definitely see people take more advantage of the three property rule and the 200% rule, right. And name or identify multiple properties, knowing that there's, you know, possibility that they might not be able to close on, you know, their first pick. Um, You know, I often, you know recommend to people sometimes they're they're under contract for one and so they feel like oh I don't need to identify three properties right I'm already under contract I already know what I'm buying but I think you know because there is some risk that something could come up and prevent that closing or prevent that closing to happen timely mm-hmm. it's still worth taking advantage of these identification rules and identifying some backup plans
1: perfect yeah thank you that's good counsel
0: Perfect. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So the third thing that um, we're going to talk about on step two on the identification is the description requirements. What information do you need, right? When someone says, okay, you need to identify your replacement property, you need to identify what you're going to purchase. What are we talking about? Well, here, you know, I've broken it down into kind of three simple uh, things that you're looking for as far as what information you need to identify. So the first thing is that we need to be specific and unambiguous. And really what that means is that we need to be as specific as possible in identifying the property. One of the, I think, easiest examples is if we're talking about, you know, a duplex or a triplex, if what you're buying is, you know, a single unit, you need to identify that unit, right? Um, if you were going to buy the entire duplex, you could just describe it as the, you know, both addresses for the duplex. Um, you know, it's ideal to get the the tax parcel numbers because those are going to be more specific than just an address location. But basically, you need to think about it that if someone else that had no, you know, didn't understand or didn't know any details came in and looked at this identification, could they pinpoint specifically what property you were planning to purchase. That's really what you're looking for. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is if you're not buying the entire property, so you're buying a a tick interest, you're buying a a 10% tenant in common interest, that percent designation uh, should be included on your identification. If you're not buying 100% of the fee title, um, you're gonna wanna put that percent designation as part of your identification. And then also incidental property. So, you know, oftentimes um, there's some personal property and things like that that are going to be purchased along with the real property. And so you want to identify, you know, eh, generally what those incidental items are. Um, Some, you know, personal property or some equipment that may be, you know, part of the purchase. Uh, You want to include that on your identification as well. So that really kind of boils down into just a really simple way to think through the information that you're trying to gather when you're identifying your uh, replacement properties. Okay, so then moving on to step three, um, you know, as you can see, this is this is pretty simple. We've been able to boil all of this down into kind of three steps or or three items to think about, and we're already on step three. We've gotten through step one and two. And really what we're looking at here is the replacement property. Um, This is what we're going to purchase. And as I mentioned, you know, you've identified, you know, up to three properties or you've identified up to 200% of the value of the relinquished property. And now we've got to meet the deadline to close and purchase those identified properties. And that deadline's 180 days. And again, same concept day zero is when you record it on your cell um, and then day 180 you know by buyer before day 180 you've got to record on the purchase. Um, you've got to also be purchasing light kind property, this is going to be really that same analysis, as it was on step one um. And that's going to be, you know, really no primary residences. You're not purchasing the home with the plan to to live in there, move in, you know, and make it your primary residence. Uh, Oftentimes with like-kind property, people feel like it has to be the same type or same use, right? So in step one, they're like, okay, I'm selling a um, gas station And so in step three, they're looking at, okay, I've got to identify, I'm going to purchase gas stations. That's not the case. There's more room within the light kind of rule than that. Um, You know, oftentimes you can be selling a gas station and buying a single family residence as a rental property. Um, So I think again, with, with step one and step three, I think it's easier to think about it as what can you not what type of property can you not use? And you cannot include primary residences on either step, on the sell or on the purchase. Um, And then in addition to that, we need to meet the value and equity requirements. And this is where, um, you know, the basis determining that is important. Um, And then also, you know, in that same, uh, process you know understanding what's your equity in the property you're selling what's the value you're going to sell it for in general when we're talking about the value that you're going to sell it for um is really we're talking about that purchase price less you know certain qualified expenses like real estate commissions exchange fees things like that we're really talking about you know what is the value of the property you're selling and then the equity is really Proceeds, as as if we boil it down to its simplest feature, we're talking about the proceeds. You know, how much cash are you going to get out when you sell the property? And what's really key is that for both the value and the equity, we need to be equal or greater in what we purchase as far as the replacement property goes. Um, And so, with that, you know, we need to look at okay, what's the sales price? What's my debt? What proceeds am I going to get out of the property? And then we need to figure out, okay, what I'm purchasing and what I'm closing on meeting those. Is it equal in value or is it greater in value? Am I bringing some cash in? Um, is it equal in equity or greater in equity? And that's going to be key because we're all trying to avoid boot, Right. Um, If the value or equity are not equal or greater, then you're likely going to have some cash boot or mortgage boot and have a tax liability. Now, that's not always the end of the world. Um, You know, sometimes people want to engage in what's considered a partial exchange. So a partial exchange would be where you're not quite going to meet that value or equity, right? Sometimes you just got some debt consolidation you want to do. So you're going to take a little bit of cash out of the exchange um, which can be fine as long as you you know understand that that's going to be considered boot and that you're gonna have to pay taxes on it. Um, Spencer, I once had someone ask me during a presentation why it's called boot. Do you know why it's called boot?
1: That's a good question. I don't know why. So I
0: I know I put you on the spot there, right? You're like, look, you're presenting today. Like, why are you turning this around on me? I'm
1: curious to know. Yeah. Curious to know.
0: Yeah. So I, I mean, kind of same thing happened to me, right? I was giving a presentation, someone raised their hand and they're like, why do they call it boot? And I'm like, okay, that just wasn't the expected question. Right. So it had to do with back in the day with deals, exchanging horses and cash. And it was basically that the during the exchange, if cash was also included, right, these guys would stuff it down in their boots. I don't know if they just were stuffing it in their boots. They didn't want their wives to know that they got cash like and they it. got home. I don't know. I but like anyways, that. I guess it's stuck. And so we call it boot. So, hmm. you know, next time you're uh, you know, at dinner with someone and they ask you that, you can uh, <laughs> you can give them that explanation. So There are so many nuances that can be, you know, gone into with exchanges. You can go, you can discuss, you know, reverse exchanges, improvement exchanges, you know, Spencer, you and I have done a podcast together before on doing seller financing with an exchange. But really what's key is that it can also be very boiled down into simple parts, right? And it's simplest Nature, an exchange is three easy steps. It's just sell, identify, purchase. And each of those steps can be further broken down into, you know, a very simple outline of the information you you need and the information that um, you need to understand. Now, with that said, what can get a little complicated, right, is is all the, the accounting pieces of it, right? If you're not, you know, well versed in this and you're trying to figure out your basis. You know, one of the questions or one of the things that I listed as, you know, initial steps with the sale is really figuring out is an exchange right for you? Do you need to do an exchange? Um, I once had someone, you know, kind of in panic mode call me up, was like, hey, selling a property. We're going to close in a couple of days. Wasn't planning to do an exchange. I think I need to do one. Can we grab lunch? Like I'll take you to lunch. I just want to talk through all this. Right. So I'm like, okay, let me just squeeze this in my calendar. So we go to lunch and we sit down and we're talking through all these complicated scenarios. And they were complicated because we were kind of outside these three easy steps in the sense of the replacement property, right? The, the property to purchase this person really didn't have a great idea in mind of what they were looking to purchase. Um, and we're trying to figure out, you know, should I, can I purchase a a long-term leasehold interest, you know, from an affiliate, like that's the part that was getting complicated. And we were sitting there and he had brought his, you know, tax forms and things, and we were looking at it and there were a number of significant capital improvements done on the property recently. And I said, look, I'm, not your tax advisor, I'm not your CPA, but I think we're talking about like eight grand in gain. And so, you know, not to say that 8000 paying taxes on $8,000 isn't a reason to not do an exchange, but he sat back and said, you know, I think you're right. I'm going to go talk to my CPA, went and talked to the CPA, gave me a call later and said, uh, I don't think I'm going to need to do an exchange. I'm just going to pay the taxes on this. Um, And so I think there can be some parts where you want the right advisors in place as far as, hey, should I even do an exchange? If I do an exchange, you know, for my financial portfolio, what does it look like if I defer those taxes? You know, oftentimes people might have some capital losses that year. And so CPA is like, hey, this actually might be a good year to have some capital gain. So I don't want to you know, make it seem that there aren't complicated pieces to it. But what I, what I hate to hear is where people don't even look into doing an exchange because they feel like it's just this really messy, complicated, oh, I've got to be a savvy investor. I've got to know all these different things because it really does boil down into three things. And the nice thing is that the accommodator, the, the qualified intermediary, is going to help with a lot of this, right? The documentation, coordinating it with the title companies on both the sell side and the purchase side. I mean, working with a qualified intermediary that operates nationally, you're going to kind of have one group that's looking out to make sure all those documents are put in place and all those steps are followed. Um, and so that's really the misconception that I, you know, the myth that, I, that I'm that i hoping this presentation can bust, Spencer, is that it, it has, there are some complicated pieces. You wanna be working with good advisors and the right partners in place for this, but it's not just for those large investments and it's not just for, you know, those savvy investors. It can be a really, really important tax tool or estate planning tool for everyone. And it really boils down to three easy steps. Um. I don't know if there's any So questions. so I like I like
1: yeah well so I like I like your point Rachel if you have a question ask it Yeah ask it early if you don't understand the answer then ask it again Yeah <laughs> and and just gather as much information as you possibly can from your QI from your um CPA and start early and you know the 45 day window is not a long window.
0: It's not. It's like, not. It's it's definitely if you're thinking about doing a 1031 exchange, like start thinking about it as early as possible. Mm-hmm. And for you know the for the the real estate agents, I tell them often, do not assume that your clients know this is out there. Do not assume they know a 1031 exchange is available or how to do it. And not that realtors need to step in and be a tax advisor but if you if you have somebody that is selling a non-primary residence you can say be the hero by just saying hey do you know what a 1031 exchange is mm-hmm. have you talked to your cpa have you talked to a qualified intermedi- intermediary because one of the big missteps that can happen right you've got these easy steps to follow but one of the missteps is in that, that very beginning where you don't contact the QI before you sell, right? I take those phone calls where someone calls me and says, Hey, I closed on a property last week. I got, I I've heard about this great, amazing feature, this, this thing called a 1031 or some, some number combo like that, where I don't have to pay taxes now. Like I I've got all this, you know, game, but I don't have to pay taxes on it. I want to do that, and I'm told you can do it for me. And it's one of the worst conversations to have to tell someone I can't do it and we're too late. Yeah. And it's like there's often this like, oh my gosh, why didn't anyone tell me? Why didn't my title company mention it? Why didn't my real estate agent? Why didn't my CPA mention it? They knew I was selling the property. Um, and it happens just far too often. Um, so I often tell you know Realtors like if you just if someone just calls you and says hey I might want to list my property you know it's not their primary residence just mention this to them you don't have to walk them through the ins and outs right they can call the QI they can call the CPA get all that but just letting them know it's out there I mean they can just you know Google it and get at least a start on understanding it yeah and what I tell the 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 parties the exchangers is If there's any time you're selling a non-primary residence and you plan on buying something, right? You're not sure what, you're not sure overall, but your plan is not to just take the cash and put it in the bank. Always look into this because again, it's just it's it's just something where you can miss out on a great opportunity to keep the cash in the deal, to have additional leverage as a buyer, just by failing to ask the question. So I guess if I was going to add like a pre-step to the three three steps, it would just be ask, right? Yeah. Like you said, ask yeah. the question.
1: Okay, we got some good questions here. So you ready for the for these? I'm ready. Okay, Rachel. Business days or calendar days on these on this 45 day and 180 day uh, deadline?
0: Great question. Great question because I like multiple choice, so I appreciate that. And I like when I can give a less lawyerly answer, rather than saying it depends, yeah. I can actually give an answer. So it is calendar days. Holidays don't matter. Nothing. It is, it is calendar days. The IRS, you know, like I said, it's not often that they're clear, but they've been clear on this. It's calendar days. I'll also add the IRS is not very willing to give on these, these deadlines, right? I think during COVID, we're facing a worldwide pandemic. I think people really thought they would see the IRS give a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now they gave a tiny, tiny extra window for people, uh, that were, you know, trying to identify during the height of COVID, but they gave nothing on the 180 day deadline. They stuck strict. They didn't, they didn't care if we were all locked in our homes, yep. you know, doing, uh, virtual walkthroughs of properties, things like that, they stuck to it. So it's calendar days and very unlikely that the IRS will give you any wiggle room.
1: Now, can you extend the 180-day deadline?
0: There is no way to extend the deadline. And what I should bring up, though, is there actually is a scenario where you have less than 180 days. Hmm. So we talk about 180 days because it's easy, right? 45 days, 180 days, super general. But it really is, uh, it's actually the lesser of 180 days or the date that you're going to file that tax return. So when people come in, you know, late in the year, November, December, trying to get a transaction done before the end of the year, happens all the time, um, Potentially they could be facing a shorter period than 180 days if they sell, say in de- December and their tax return is going to be due April 15th, because it's a it's an individual, right? An individual exchanger. So there's ways where you can, you know, extend that, the the date of the, the tax return being due. Um, I also know, you know, quite a few people that if it's a possibility, will you know, try to roll it over, do it January 1 rather than December 31st so that they can get that full 180 days.
1: A solution to that is uh, extend your tax filing.
0: Correct. Yeah. So file for an extension on that tax return deadline. Yeah.
1: And don't file it on February 1st. Yeah. if If you haven't closed on your replacement property, right?
0: Correct. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Next question. What about vacation homes that are not rented?
0: Okay, so that's a really good question. Um, and what we're talking about there, right, is do they qualify for like-kind property? Are they the type of property you can use in an exchange? And the IRS have get, has given some guidance on this because, you know, vacation homes, well, not only vacation homes, but vacation homes and you know, renting out single family residences has been hot, right? We all know that you can, instead of a hotel, you've got options on VRBO and all these platforms. So really when the IRS is looking at putting this in place, what they're trying to do, right, is keep the kind of keep the economy moving. And so they focused on light kind property being, you know, income producing or uh, for use in a business or trade, or investment property. Mm-hmm. And so generally a vacation home that sits vacant and is only used for personal use would not qualify. Um, there are there is a safe harbor for you know vacation homes. I'm going to call them vacation homes, but but really they're sort of rental homes that are rental properties that are also used for vacation. Um, And there are scenarios where that could qualify as long as you meet the, there's kind of a minimum requirement of the number of days the properties need to be rented out, and then a maximum requirement of how many days you can use that property um, for personal use. Uh, So a strict vacation home stays vacant, only used for, you know, personal use, um, I'm going to say that most CPAs are going to say, no, don't do it, won't qualify. Um, But if you, you know, rent out that property most of the time and the personal use is limited, um, then you might fall within that safe harbor. Um, just Just to generally high level, the safe harbor is that you need to own the property you're selling for at least two years. So it can't be something you've only, you know, held short term. You're gonna own it two years. For each of those two years, they break it down into the 12 month increments. Um, For each of those 12 month periods, you need to rent out the property for at least 14 days or more. So 14 days or more. And then your personal use needs to be limited to the maximum of 14 days or 10% of the proportion of time that it's rented out. So that's a little complicated, kind of a mouthful. Um, I'm a visual person, Spencer, so I would, you know, need to draw that out on a board. But if anyone has, you know, specific questions, wants to do the math, talk through that more, I'd be happy to. But generally, that's how it works with vacation homes.
1: Perfect. Um, okay, how do you spell boot?
0: Boot. Just uh, B O O T. Boot. Yep. Nothing special about it. And you know, with its history, we're we're really talking about boots, you know, like sticking that cash in your cowboy boot.
1: Um, Just kind of to to go deeper on boot, boot is considered if you sell a a investment property and there's a $300,000 loan and you purchase your replacement property with only the equity and don't, you know, and it's worth uh, 300000 less than what you sold, right? So in other words, you just buy, use, use your equity, don't buy something of equal or greater value. You buy something worth less than the, the loan is that you just paid off. That is also considered boot if you don't use the...
0: Yeah, that's debt. a great question. Don't replace so, the debt. Because yeah. that's another area where there's oftentimes a misconception. So a lot of times people... You know, understand that they need to just roll their equity, right? Just roll their proceeds, the cash into the next deal. Um, if that doesn't meet the equal or greater value requirement, then yes, you could have boot. And so I'm going to just kind of walk through your example and mm-hmm. um, I'm going to give two examples. Uh, I'll walk through yours for, first, which would be mortgage boot which is, in my opinion, the worst kind of boot. And I'll go into that. And then also an example of cash boot. So talking through Spencer's example, let's say you've got a property that, let's just make it easy, $600,000 is what you're going to sell it for. You've got the $300,000 of debt, which Spencer mentioned. So you close, right? Debt's paid off, mortgage is paid off. Um, You've got $300,000 cash sitting with the qualified intermediary. You go out, you find a great, you know, downsize a little bit property that's $300,000 and you tell the qualified intermediary, send that cash, that's what I'm gonna purchase. Okay, so in that scenario, we met the equity requirement, right? We had 300,000 equity, we bought or we put 300,000 of equity in. But we didn't meet the value requirement because the value of what we sold was 600,000. The value of what we purchased was only 300,000. So we have $300,000 of mortgage boot. So come tax time, we would have to pay taxes on that $300,000 of boot, even though we don't even have cash in hand to pay it, right? We've already spent the cash on the purchase. So that's why mortgage boot, in my opinion, is, is really the worst of the worst because you've got tax liability and no cash in hand to cover that liability um now one thing so to solve that scenario right really kind of two options one is that you get you take out debt on the purchase right so you match that debt so you buy something worth six hundred thousand and you match it and you you've got a three hundred thousand dollar uh, mortgage basically what you sold and what you bought look identical from the value and equity and debt perspective the other option is you can always bring in more cash to cover the debt. So if you had $300,000 in cash, you could bring that in buy a property for 600,000 using all cash, you know, all equity and that would be fine. Now, what you can't do is take out cash, right? So that's going to be cash boot. So let's do another if you if you're okay with it Spencer unless there's yeah. a lot of questions running up. Let's do no, another go ahead. example. So $500,000, or let's just stick with the $600,000. So $600,000 sell price um, and $300,000 loan. So same exact scenario. Now we're going to meet the value requirement. We're going to buy another property worth $600,000. But of that $300,000 in equity, we only sent $200,000 of it to the qualified intermediary. We kept 100,000 of it to our, you know, we put it in our savings account, we kept that. And so when we purchased the replacement property, instead of only taking out $300,000 of debt, we took out 400, right? So we've met the value, 600,000, 600,000, but we've no longer met the equity because in the property we sold, we had $300,000 of equity. And in the property we purchased, we only have two. So now we have $100,000 of boot and we're going to have a tax liability on that. Now, cash boot sometimes makes sense, right? If that person was like, well, I really want that $100,000 out because I want to buy a boat or I want to consolidate some other debt or I don't know, whatever. Um, and so they're like, I am willing to pay the tax liability on that, right? But And the good thing is you have the cash in hand to pay that tax liability, So, and that's what's considered a partial exchange, right? So you don't match the value in equity. You have some cash boot, but sometimes it's still um, worth it from the, the tax perspective to do a partial exchange.
1: Good. Thank you, Rachel. Okay. Here are two questions that are almost exactly the same. If the identified property is out of state, how does that affect the 1031? And kind of a secondary question is: Can we sell in one state and buy in another? In other words, do are there in, any limitations to state lines when doing a ten thirty one exchange?
0: Yeah, both great questions. So um, you can absolutely sell in one state and buy in another state. Um, and as far as you know, how that affects it, um, if you're working with a, a QI that operates, you know, nationally or operates in each of those states. Uh, they're going to be able to help coordinate that for you working with the title companies in each of those states. No problems there. Uh, Absolutely works for a 1031 exchange. What doesn't work for a 1031 exchange is if we get out of the country. So it has to be uh, a U.S. property. So what you can't do is you can't sell in Utah and buy a condo in Mexico. But you can sell in Utah and buy a condo in Florida. uh, you can kind of tell the areas I'm thinking about, Spencer, with this extra long winter we've had here in Utah. But uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can absolutely go across state lines um, and, you know, the QI can help facilitate that on both ends of it. Uh, what you can't do is go outside of the U.S.
1: Can you put something under contract and then identify it?
0: Yes. So technically if you put something under contract during the 45 day period it's actually deemed identified. Um same thing if you put it under contract or you close in the 45 day period you've deemed to satisfy the identification requirements.
1: You know at Mill Creek we see a lot of 1031 buyers come in and they are either they're under contract with the replacement property almost ready to close and they put one of our tenant in common offerings under contract with a contingency that their uh, relinquished property closes right and so that's a great move because they oftentimes won't skip a heartbeat on rent and they'll just continue that that cash flow right away so we see this quite often they yeah. put it under contract and then they just hand their QI the the signed contract before yeah. or after they're closing, right?
0: Yeah. No, I mean that happens quite a bit. Where we, yeah, we see they've got the they've got their property listed. They'll get that under contract. They'll mm-hmm. get the purchase under contract with, like you said, a contingency for the yeah. sale to happen. They'll shoot us both contracts and say, "Hey, here's the ten thirty one we're planning to do. If this sells, we're going to be ready to purchase on this immediately thereafter." So, yeah, yeah I think it's a really great method. And, you know, kind of eliminates a lot of the, the process of like, okay, did we meet the 45 day deadline, things like that? um Yeah, so definitely a great way to set set things up.
1: Good. Okay, here's an interesting question about LLC. Can I 1031 my portion of an LLC when selling?
0: Okay, that is a great question. um And it's going to kind of what I'm going to put the context, right? This is again, kind of back to, are we working with the right kind of property? Is this like kind property? Um, The thing that gets tricky about LLC interests, and for the sake of the question, I'm gonna assume we're talking about, you know, not a single member LLC. So we're talking about, let's just, for the example, we've got two 50-50 partners, okay? So an LLC owns the property, um, two 50-50 partners own the LLC. Uh oftentimes one partner's like, hey, I want to cash out. I'm good. You know, going to go do something else other than real estate with my funds. I don't know, whatever. And the other partner's like, oh, no, I'm, I've already got this thing lined up with, with Mill Creek. I'm buying a, you know, tick interest through them. Mm-hmm. I want to do a 1031 exchange. Happens quite a bit, right? Because for convenience, Um, You want to own the property that, you know, in the LLC, things like that, so that it's easier to manage between the two people. Um, But the problem is, is that the ownership interest in an LLC is personal property, right? So with a 1031 exchange with like kind property, we need to be dealing with real property. And so the LLC interest, you know, selling that and exchanging would not qualify as Light kind property and you know what comes up is some fun phrases where you look to structure you know you can structure maybe like one partner buying out the other you can also look at structuring a drop and swap or a swap and drop Mm -hmm. um you know along with boot it's just these these great little sayings that come along with 1031s but oftentimes you know A drop and swap in its most kind of high level is the LLC dropping the property out, right? Distributing it out to its two partners, 50-50. And then those two partners as like a tick, you know, tenants in common sell the property. One of them does an exchange with their 50%. The other one does whatever they want. Um, A swap and drop is, you know, really kind of the opposite of that where the LLC actually still sells the property doesn't exchange buying something new and then in the future the the partner that wants to stay in real estate buys out the other partner right or they drop or they drop it out at that point and um one of them sells it to the other partner so can be a little complicated um without getting into all the details i'm always happy to talk you know more with anyone about drop and swaps or swap and drops but that's kind of what you're looking at um, just going straight to say, oh, I sold an LLC interest and now I'm buying property isn't going to work because what you've sold is a a personal property interest.
1: Okay, here's an interesting question. What about airplanes?
0: Yeah, so airplanes have like their own special place, Um, but really it's that you can do exchanges with airplanes, like airplanes to airplanes. They're not necessarily just grouped in and treated as like real property. Um, but yeah, so there's a special, I don't know why it, I don't know if it's just like the high value or why the IRS felt like we need to keep people buying and selling airplanes. Um, but yes, you can structure, uh, a tax deferred, you know, exchange with airplanes.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Would it be better to take the hit with mortgage boot? Uh, should you not want to get back into debt?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because I mean, especially right now, right? Debt is not cheap right now. It's, you know, a lot more expensive than it was. And so there could be scenarios where it might be worth taking the mortgage boot hit. And really it's just kind of looking at okay, what would the the overall hit be um, on the gain uh, versus what the mortgage boot hit would be. So there can be scenarios. Um, And if you're going to have the cash, you know, the ability to cover that, that tax liability on the mortgage boot, then yeah, there could definitely be some scenarios where it would make sense still to do it.
1: Okay, next question. Can you also have cash boot, if you don't identify enough value as well, I had a 1031. I had a 1031 who had 1.5 million but only ended up with a one and a quarter million purchase could you take enough cash from the equity to cover the taxes on the mortgage boot?
0: Yeah, so you can, yeah. So if if there's not, if you don't identify and close on enough value, then yes, that would also trigger boot. Um, I mean, really, I think the way to kind of look at it is the IRS is trying to say, look, taxpayer, the only benefit that we want you to get is a new property, right? So it's like, we want you to, to sell a property and get a new property or properties that look you know similar to what you sold. And so if you have any type of you know cash that you get out or discharge of indebtedness, right, you you don't you no longer have that debt. If you get those, that benefit in any way, they're gonna say that it's boot. So it's really yeah. any financial benefit the exchanger gets other than just the exchange of properties.
1: Yeah. You know, and kind of part of that, part of his question, I think also is, okay, if you need the $100,000, right, for medical bills or
0: something,
1: you can take out more than the $100,000 so that you have the 100,000 to pay your your medical need, but then you also have enough cash to pay the the taxes due. So, you know, I think we've seen basically tax liability of around 30%, right around there. You know, talk to your CPA, get that yeah. final calculation 30, 35%. And so you may need to take out 130, 135,000 if you need $100,000. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're right, Spencer. Yeah. And I think that's right. I think, you know, I don't know, like you've got to talk to your CPA, right? Because we're talking somewhere around 20 plus for federal. I mean, here in Utah, we've got a 5% state. So yeah, you're talking anywhere from 25 to
1: 32. And there's and there's like, depreciation recapture and there's yeah. net investment income tax. I mean, yeah. there's a yeah, lot- Yeah, you
0: want to understand kind of your full yeah. tax exposure on that boot. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it can absolutely be you know, it's still very beneficial. I mean, if you're facing a large gain, which a lot of people are right now, right? Prices are high. Um, The the values of property are really high. And so if there's a huge gain you're facing um, by structuring a 1031 and just realizing, okay, but I do need some cash out. You know, part of the reason I'm selling is because this these medical bills or, you know, this other debt consolidation or this other, you know, just personal property item that I want to, to be able to get and have cash for, um, it can still make a lot of sense to do a 1031 and have some boot involved and just be ready to cover that tax liability.
1: Okay. Does Mill Creek have a branch in Silicon Valley? No, we do not, but we have offerings in, um, all over the u s, mostly between Utah and the Mississippi and the South, we try to keep our offerings to low state income tax states, areas of growth. and so we want to keep cap rates as high as we can and, and um, taxes as low as we can. So we can help someone in Silicon Valley, but i I doubt i I honestly doubt we'll ever be in California because Cap rates are just so low and taxes are just so high. So, okay. So value can be more than one property to meet the value. You can buy more than one property like kind. So I think this is more like sell something larger. Can you split that into two different replacement properties or three or four different replacement properties?
0: Yeah. And we're kind of, I feel like we're seeing quite a bit of that right now, Spencer, wow. where um you know, the property management on maybe something larger, um, you know, or or people are moving to kind of a more, I'm going to have, you know, just some residential rental. So we are seeing quite a bit where, you know, someone's selling one and maybe buying multiple. And yes, so just simple, simple example, you sell something um, of value worth a million, and you go buy two replacement properties of value of 500000 you know, between those two properties, again, you've got to match up the, the equity um, and the debt. But yes, you can buy multiple and, you know, combine them to meet your value and equity, keeping in mind that you've got to do them both in that deadline, right? So you're still stuck with that 180-day deadline. So let's say you're going to, you know, sell one, by two. You've got to sell the one and make sure you close and purchase the two in that 180 day deadline.
1: Yeah. Rachel, do you have um, contact info you can share on maybe the next slide or something?
0: You know what, I have this next slide that is telling everyone thank you for joining us. Um, but you know <laughs> I did fail to put contact. What's a um, good way they can reach out to you? Yeah, so the best way to to reach out to me in Meridian Exchange is through our team email. Um, it's pretty simple. It's just 1031 at mtcutah.com. That's going to be the best way you reach out to that email. You're going to get me um, and my partners in our exchange company uh, to be able to get back out to you. We're always happy to, you know, correspond by email or set up phone calls to talk through any questions that someone might have.
1: Okay. We got a final question here. Okay. The replacement properties were adjacent and listed separately, but were being sold by one owner. Is there a way I can use just one identification for the two?
0: Yeah, that's a really, that's a really great question. Um, I mean, my, I'm going to make an assumption that because we're saying they're two adjacent properties, one seller, I mean, we're talking about two separate tax parcels.
1: Yep. That's Um, how I read that
0: that's, you know, so that's a a little bit of a gray area. I mean, ideally would be having the seller do a deed to combine, you know, just cover the cost of having the seller do a deed to combine them into a single tax parcel um, and have them sell it to you as a single tax parcel. That's going to make, you know, a better argument that you're identifying a single property. Um, but, you know, you might not have like as much of a willing seller. And so, you know, I think I would, on that one, punt a little bit and leave it up to you and your CPA. I think, you know, if that property had a single address, you'd have a slightly better argument. If the properties are basically kind of necessary to be bought together, that would also help with the argument. Um, You know, I I knew we had to end on one that, like, wasn't going to be as straightforward as an answer as I could give, but... (laughs) Yeah, that one's going to have, you know, some facts and circumstances to look at.
1: Rachel, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. We sure appreciate it. To all of our our attendees, thank you for joining us. This uh will be made as an on-demand recording, so it will be it will be sent over to you uh to everyone's email. And uh, thank you very much. And all that right, concludes the webinar. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.